Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining me for tonight's talk. My name is Adam Wood, and I'm the author of Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective, and also Trial of Percy Lefroy Mapleton, subject of tonight's talk, which is entitled Swanson and the Brighton Railway Murder. Should you have any questions, please type them in the comments below, and I'll pick them up at the end of the talk. Uh, the case I'm describing tonight dates from 1881, and was only the second railway murder in British history. For the Victorians, the railways were a great source of pride, as the British Empire had expanded at a great rate since the turn of the 19th century, so too had the population of London. Workers, merchants and refugees alike flocked to London, its population doubling from a little over 1 million in 1801 to 2 million 50 years later. By 1871, 3.9 million people were living in the capital, many refugees from poorer parts of the country. It's estimated that a fifth of London's population at this time consisted of Irish settlers escaping the Great Famine of the 1840s. As the vast majority of these immigrants were labourers, they were perfectly suited to working on the numerous construction projects underway in mid-Victorian London. Euston, Paddington, Fenchurch Street, Waterloo, King's Cross and St Pancras railway stations were all built during a period of little over 20 years. London Bridge railway station, a crucial scene in this talk, was opened in 1836. The murder of Mr Frederick Gold by Percy Lefroy Mapleton was the first homicide on a British railway since that of Thomas Briggs some 17 years earlier. The 1864 attack by, on Briggs by the German tailor Franz Müller, shown here, was the first time a murder had occurred on the train and understandably shocked and alarmed the nation in equal measure. Prior to this, the railways had often been used by the public as a means of attending public executions, such as the hanging of multiple murderer John Gleason Wilson at Liverpool in 1849, when it was estimated that almost a quarter of the 100,000 attendees came to the city by train. Following the murder of Thomas Briggs, the safety of passengers was widely debated. Railway carriages at that time could only be entered via the doors on either side, with no doors linking compartments or corridors allowing passengers to pass along the train. In a small measure designed to allay fears and criticism, the South Western Railway installed small portholes in the dividing walls between compartments, supposedly so that passengers would feel more secure. These portholes, quickly christened Muller's Lights, had female passengers complaining of peeping toms. The Railway Act of 1868 compelled railway companies to install a means of communication between passengers and the guard, resulting in the introduction of a rope equipped with a bell at either end. Unfortunately, these early communication cords failed to work more often than not. The introduction of American Pullman carriages to Britain in 1874, with their longer interiors and connecting corridors, had promised to resolve the problem, but these would not be in general use until the 1890s. Nevertheless, when the Brighton Express departed London Bridge on the afternoon of 27th of June 1881, the railways were still to be considered to be, in the main, crime-free. The victim in this story, Mr Frederick Isaac Gold, had enjoyed a successful life. In 1881 he was 64 years old, having been born in Islington, North London, to wine merchant Isaac Gold and his wife Hannah in 1817. But very soon the family relocated to the East End, with Isaac setting up a shop as a tea dealer, tea dealer on the Whitechapel Road. By the age of 22, Frederick Gold was already taking his first steps running his own business, a baker's shop on Six Mile End Road. It was an address he would retain for 25 years. In April 1845, Mr Gold married Lydia Wood at Trinity Church in Stepney. She had been born in Woolworth in South London, where her parents still lived. And as he continued to expand his business, Frederick Gold would open a baker's shop close to his in-laws on the busy East Street. By 1869, Frederick Gold was casting an eye on retirement. He had sold most of his shops and kept just a single bakery going on East Street in Woolworth, managed by a Mr and Mrs Cross. He and Lydia, Lydia retired to leafy Preston Park 
a mile north of Brighton on the south coast, with Frederick travelling to London once a week in order to collect the takings. Although now in his 50s, in 1880s terms, deemed as elderly, Mr Gold was a strong, robust man who enjoyed very good health. The couple were not blessed with children, but enjoyed a comfortable life and were cherished members of the community. By the time of the 1871 census, they were living at 1 Claremont Road in Preston Park, shown here, and established themselves in their peaceful, sedate surroundings. By contrast, his killer, Percy Lefroy Mapleton, was at the time of the murder a desperate man, a strange, self-deluded character with few friends who lived a sort of fantasy world resorting to petty theft and fraud, but it hadn't always been this way. Lefroy's mother, Mary, was the eldest daughter of Lieutenant William Seal, Colonel Secretary at St. St. Helena in the South Atlantic Ocean. His father was Captain Henry Mapleton of the Royal Navy, by 1841, Harbour Master at St. Helena. Following their marriage in 1843, Henry and Mary welcomed two daughters, Mary and Eliza. In 1847, Henry was appointed summary judge on the island, a position apparently created for him. But during the 1850s, Henry's mental powers began to desert him. He began to suffer hallucinations and other delusions. He apparently attempted suicide and later tried to smother his wife. By the late 1850s, his mental problems were causing concern, and it was said that on more than one occasion, Sir Dr Edward Drummond Hay, the governor of St Helena, begged Mapleton's friends to persuade him to resign in order to prevent him being dismissed from his position. The pressure seemingly told, and the Mapleton family left the colonial island for England, where a son, Percy, was born on the 23rd of February 1860 in Peckham, South London. The boy was, by all accounts, a sickly child. The family's doctor, <coughs> excuse me, Dr Thomas Green, would later report that Mary Mapleton suffered from both heart and lung problems and that her son had hereditary lung disease. With Henry Mapleton still employed in the Royal Navy, his wife Mary and their three children went to live with her brother Archibald Seal, a retired superintendent of lands for the East India Company, his wife Sarah and the children Francis and Annie. Even after Henry Mapleton retired and moved to a house nearby in New Cross and his wife and daughters went to live with him, Percy Lefroy Mapleton remained with his aunt, uncle, aunt and cousins due to the delicate nature of his health. But before he was 10 years old, Lefroy's mother and uncle had died and he was raised by his aunt Sarah. Despite his delicate disposition, he received a good education, but the lack of any parental discipline in his life resulted in his childish habit of lying going unchecked. Following the completion of his education in August 1876, Lefroy seems to have just floated along, lacking any firm direction. He attempted to start a career in journalism, but was unable to find a break and it seems that he began to make a habit of obtaining money through deception from this time. On doctor's orders, at the end of 1877, he travelled to Ventnor on the Isle of Wight, spending several months there in the hope that the warmer climate would do him some good. The following year, it was decided he should travel to Australia, again supposedly for the good of his health, but the time of his departure, December 1878, is close enough to a theatre scam he attempted the previous September to allow us to question whether it was a coincidence. On his arrival back in England, Lefroy moved in with his cousins at 4 Cathcart Road in Wallington, where Annie now lived with her husband Thomas Clayton and their children. He took up lodgings in a shared room with his other cousin, Frank Seal, who was at the time 39 years old and an unmarried clerk in the city. The two became inseparable. Desperate for a career in journalism, Lefroy had cards printed up advertising himself as an author and journalist. He had a spell writing for the local newspaper on a contributory basis, and he later claimed to have spent several months working for the Herald and Mid-Surrey Advertiser. In the two years following his return from Australia, Lefroy's life entered a steady downward spiral, driven by the breakup of his family and failed aspirations as a career in journalism. By the spring of 1881, he had begun pawning possessions of any value, both his own and those belonging to others, and he had resorted to petty theft. 
His need for ready money was forcing him down ever more desperate paths, and the next step was murder. At this moment in time, the lives of Mr. Frederick Isaac Gold and Percy Lefroy Mapleton could hardly be more different. Yet it was almost fated that they should meet. And on the afternoon of Monday the 27th of June 1881, they did, in the most tragic of circumstances. That day began early, with Mr. Gold walking the short distance from his home in Preston Park Railway Station in order to take the 809 train to Brighton. From there, he caught the 8.45 express to London Bridge, arriving at 9.45am. It was a usual routine he followed on a Monday and he held a first class season ticket. He was dressed in his normal way and although it was a fine morning, he carried an umbrella under his coat, hanging from the armhole of his waistcoat, as was his custom. As usual, he wore an eyeglass and his white-faced gold pocket watch attached to a long old-fashioned chain hung around his neck. Mr Gold was a man of routine. At around 10.30 he arrived at his bakery shop in Woolworth, which you can see here on the right with the white canopy. The manager of the shop, Mrs Catherine Cross, handed over the takings of the previous week, £38, five shillings and one penny. Bidding Mrs Cross a good day, Mr Gold left the shop. She believed he was going to order some flour. Whether he did so is unknown. What is certain is that Mr Gold headed north towards Whitechapel, where he retained an account with the London County and Westminster Bank at 130 Whitechapel High Street. He entered the bank about 1pm and paid in £38, making no withdrawal. That week's business complete, he prepared himself for the return journey to Preston Park. He next arrived at 1.50pm at London Bridge Railway Station. Ticket collector William Franks knew Mr Gold well, and he spoke to him on the platform as he was about to board the 2pm Brighton Express train, which was ready to depart. Mr Gold settled in his first-class compartment on a composite train at 1.55pm. He settled himself into the middle seat facing the engine. As Mr Gold was rushing towards the capital, Percy Lefroy Mapleton was still lying in his bed at 4 Cathcart Road. Thomas Clayton, the husband of Lefroy's cousin Annie, went to his room to ask when three items belonging to him, which Lefroy had pledged at a pawnbroker's, would be returned. Lefroy promised to redeem them but before the end of the day. Frank Seal, Annie's, Annie Clayton's brother, who shared the room with Lefroy, had already left for work at Messrs J.T. Hutchinson on Gresham Street in the city, where he was employed as a clerk. Clayton departed for his own job as a distiller's clerk and Lefroy was left alone. He desperately needed money and fast. Just before 10 o'clock at the stationery shop he owned on nearby railway terrace, Albert Ellis received a visit from one of Annie Clayton's children. The child handed Mr Ellis a letter requesting his attendance at 4 Cathcart Road. Mr Ellis recognised Lefroy's handwriting, having known him as a regular customer, for 18 months. The letter asked Mr Ellis to take an order from Annie Clayton, who was heavily pregnant. The stationer duly went to nearby Cathcart Road as requested, leaving his young assistant Frederick Pink in charge of the shop, very close to Wallington Railway Station. I'm not sure you can see, but uh, Mr Ellis's shop is in the, in the middle of this row of uh, shops at the railway terrace. On arrival, Mr Ellis was greeted by the Clayton servant Joanna Chamberlain and was handed a letter supposedly from Annie, but in fact again in Lefroy's handwriting. As he read the note, Mr Ellis heard the gate click and looking out of a window, saw the top of Lefroy's hat as he left the house. When Ellis arrived back at his shop a few minutes later, the 17-year-old assistant Frederick Pink told him that Lefroy had just left. Apparently set his outstanding account of one pound and seven shillings, with two sovereigns, which were given to him in a sealed envelope, bearing Mr Ellis's name. Pink gave Lefroy all the money in the till, 13 shillings as change. Mr Ellis opened the envelope. It contained two sovereign-sized, worthless Hanoverian medals, thousands of which were issued in the wake of the Battle of Waterloo, a solitary shilling and a blank piece of paper. By the time Ellis emptied the paltry contents of the envelope into his expectant palm, Lefroy was long gone, next to be seen close to London Bridge.
Had Mr Gold taken the most direct route to his bakery shop in East Street, to the bank at Whitechapel, travelling north along Borough High Street, he would have passed Messrs Adams and Hillstead, pawnbrokers at number 25, where at that moment Lefroy was redeeming a pistol which he had pledged a week earlier. At two minutes to two, Percy Lefroy and Mapleton appeared on the platform, walking briskly towards the front of the train and looking in through the carriage windows as he did so. In the front carriage, he saw a lady and a gentleman speaking, so he turned on his heel and walked back to the previous carriage where Mr Gold was sitting alone. He fumbled with the door and ticket collector Franks opened it for him. Lefroy offered up his ticket, a single from London and Brighton. Franks closed the door and watched Lefroy take his seat opposite Mr Gold. Two minutes later, the train slowly pulled out of London Bridge. At the first stop, East Croydon, guard Thomas Watson got out and stood on the platform. He had been employed by the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway for 20 years. He looked in the first class compartment and saw Mr Gold, whom he had known for the best part of a decade. As the train entered the Merstham Tunnel around 10 minutes later, a Brighton chemist named William Gibson, travelling in the compartment to Mr Gold's with his son, heard four or five loud bangs, which he took to be fog signals. The reports followed one after the other, all in the space of five or six seconds. The train continued on its journey. At 20 minutes past three, the train pulled into Preston Park Station, a mile from Brighton. It had travelled non-stop from East Croydon, although it had slowed down just north of Hassocks Gate for a brief period in response to a stop signal. And that brief uh, pause would give, uh, later give the Defence Council an opportunity for an alibi. As a train ground to halt at Preston Park, ticket collector Joseph Stark approached the second composite carriage. Inside, alone, sat Percy Lefroy Mapleton. His face and neck were smeared with blood, and there was a clot beside one ear. There was blood between his fingers, blood upon his clothes, blood in the carriage, and blood upon the train's footboard, which also bore the marks of bloody fingerprints. The carriage was other side empty. Lefroy stepped from the carriage and asked for help. A, a second ticket collector, Richard Gibson, approached. The stricken passenger said he'd been attacked by two men. One an elderly gentleman and the other he described as a countryman and was desperate for medical attention. Guard Thomas Watson left the train and joined them. Scanning Lefroy's bloodied clothing, he noticed a length of chain between five and four and seven inches long hanging from one of his shoes. Taking the end between his fingers and given a gentle tug, a small gold watch popped out. Lefroy seemed to be as surprised as anyone at the appearance of the watch, but later claimed that he'd, been, he'd concealed it there for, for safety when he entered the carriage and saw his two travelling companions. Lefroy repeated his story of having been assaulted and shot at. A station, mar mar station master, William Hall, ordered that Lefroy be escorted to Brighton, where he could be seen by the superintendent there. The passenger and the ticket collector got into the bloody carriage and the Brighton Express re resumed its journey towards its original intended destination. Mrs Lydia Gold, sitting at home less than half a mile away on Claremont Road, had quite possibly heard the train pull into Preston Park Station. It was the service which her husband usually caught after completing his business in London. Perhaps she boiled some water for a pot of tea and waited. As Lefroy was being escorted to Brighton, a plate layer employed by the London Brighton and South Coast Railway Company named Thomas Jennings was walking through the Balcombe Tunnel with his nephew. By the light of their naphtha lamp, they saw the body of a large man lying on its back. The face, which had been badly beaten, was partly covered by a coat. The right arm was crossed over the left breast and the left arm folded underneath the back. One boot remained on the body, the other was missing. Jennings thought the body felt slightly warm to the touch. The nephew, William Jennings, went to telegraph news of the gruesome discovery and shortly afterwards PC George Lewis of the Sussex Constabulary arrived and searched the body and the surrounding area. In the pockets of the coat he found a pocketbook, a rail season ticket and two receipts. The knees of the trousers were torn and blooded. Six yards from the body, Lewis found a broken eyeglass. 
His pocket watch, that fundamental accessory of the Victorian gentleman, was missing. The body is removed from the tracks and taken to the stables at the railway in near Balcombe Station, where it was seen by local doctors Bias and Hall, along with Scotland Yard's divisional surgeon Dr Thomas Bond, who would give details of the injuries, writing, There are excoriations and bruises, and the skull was badly fractured. The fracture was such as might have been caused by the body coming into violent contact with the ground. The left hand and face were badly cut, as if by some sharp instrument. These cuts must have been inflicted during life and have bled freely. There was a wound in the corner of the left eye, about half an inch deep, and the mucous membrane of the eye was very much injected with blood. There was a bullet mark under the ear, and a bullet was extracted from the spine, into which it had passed. Such a bullet passing into the neck would have caused momentary insensibility. There would be little loss of blood from the shot, but a great deal from the knife wounds, of which there were 14 on different parts of the body. It was clear that the victim had not been knocked down by a train, rather he had been attacked while on board and either fell or was pushed out of the carriage door as it passed through the tunnel. <clears throat> During the short journey to Brighton with ticket collector Richard Gibson, Lefroy elaborated on his story. He had been fired at three or four times, he said, and pointed to a wound on the top of his head, where he said he had been struck with a blunt instrument. His assailant had been the countryman and not the ugly gentleman. He did not know what happened to either. On arrival at Brighton, Gibson took his injured charge to Superintendent Anscombe's office. Lefroy complained of feeling unwell and asked to see a doctor. He was taken to the town hall, where there was a police office at which he could make a statement before being taken to medical attention. After Lefroy's wounds were cleaned, it became apparent that the extent of his injuries was comparatively minor. There was a wound about the size of a shilling on his forehead, a graze at the back of his right ear, and six small cuts at the crown of his head. House surgeon Dr Hall believed the wounds could have been caused by an umbrella or the barrel of a small pistol. After wrapping a bandage around Lefroy's head, Dr Hall suggested he should remain in hospital overnight as a precaution. But the injured man was having none of it. He had important business back in London that evening, he said. They returned to Superintendent Anscombe's office at Brighton Railway Station, where Lefroy was asked if he was badly injured. I should think I am, having four or five bullets in my head, was the reply. Detective Sergeants George Holmes and William Howland of the Metropolitan Police, attached to the London Brighton and Southcast Railway, set about examining the possessions of their strange guest. In Lefroy's po coat pocket were 14 shillings, and his trouser pocket a white-faced gold watch smeared with blood. A leather pocketbook was also found, and as Holmes was about to take a look inside, Lefroy exclaimed, That is my private property. The detective quietly returned the notebook. The interrogation over, Lefroy was allowed to return to Wallington. He was escorted by detectives Holmes and Howland, and the trio boarded the 610 train to London. <clears throat> On the return journey to Wallington, Sergeant Holmes rode with Lefroy in a first-class carriage, while Sergeant Howland travelled in the rear carriage so that he could more easily make inquiries at each stopping station along the way. At Balcombe, Howland stepped onto the platform and spoke with the station master. He, he later approached the, the carriage in which Holmes was sitting and broke the news that a, blood, a body, had been found in, body had been found in the tunnel. At Balcombe, Howland, just a few minutes later after Lefroy and the detectives had departed from Brighton, a telegraph had been received at Superintendent Anscombe's office, breaking the news of the discovery. The superintendent immediately telegraphed the station master at Balcombe, and despite the grim news, still the train continued on its route. It eventually stopped at East Croydon, and Lefroy and Holmes got out. The station master passed a telegram to the detective, which read, Tell Inspector Holmes to take number of watch on wounded man, as man found had no watch. Lefroy and Holmes took a cab from East Croydon to the drawing room, uh, a cab from East Croydon to Lefroy's lodgings at Cathcart Road. 
The men went into the house and entered the drawing room. It was by now 9pm. Holmes asked Lefroy for a statement, which this time was written down. Thomas Clayton entered the room. Acting on the telegram, telegram received at East, East Croydon, the detective asked Lefroy for the serial number of his watch, receiving the confident answer 56312. Unfortunately, Sergeant Holmes took down an address where Lefroy might be found the following day and then bade him and Thomas Clayton a good evening. He left the house and walked the short distance to Wallington Station. When he arrived, until Detective Sergeant Howland and Sergeant Charles Tobart joined him. One went to the back door, the other inside to apprehend Lefroy. They returned empty-handed. George Holmes had been absent from Court 4 Cathcart Road for just six minutes, but Percy Lefroy Mapleton had vanished into thin air. Three days later, a little after 11 o'clock on the morning of Thursday the 30th of June, the dishevelled fugitive knocked on the door of 32 Smith Street at Stepney. This was, for the East End, a quiet road, and it comprised and it was comprised of two tidy, tidy two-storey terraced houses. He had seen a notice in the window offering a room to rent, and after some negotiation with the landlady's Mrs. Sarah Bickers, he agreed to take the room that afternoon. It was to be his sanctuary for, his sanctuary for 11 days. It was another astonishing coincidence. Lefroy had exited the bloody carriage 500 yards from Mr Gold's home at Preston Park and now was in hiding just half a mile from his victim's former residence on the Mile End Road. Sarah Bickers was completely unaware of her new lodger's infamy. He had reinvented himself as Mr George Clark, claiming to have just arrived from Liverpool. He was an engraver, he said, who required a quiet room in which to continue his work, free from disruption. He had no luggage, explaining it would follow in a day or two. And despite the, his claim to be spending all hours working, nobody ever saw the engraving machine, which always seemed to be just put away as Mrs Bickers or her daughter arrived to, en to enter the room with the lodger's meals. George Clark settled into his room upstairs at the front and drew the blinds. The day before his arrival, the inquest into Miss Gold's death was opened. It was presided over by Wynne Baxter, the coroner for East Sussex, with the jury deliberating for just 20 minutes before returning a verdict of willful murder against Arthur Lefroy, alias Mapleton. Meanwhile, the search for Lefroy was intensifying. Despite their best effort, fugitive, and resorted to having a likeness drawn of their quarry. The sketch shown here on the left found its way into the hands of the Daily Telegraph, who decided to include a version of it in their edition of the following day, the 1st of July, 1881. In doing so, they made history by publishing the first likeness of a wanted man in a national newspaper. Alongside their sketch, the Telegraph gave a physical description as provided by the police. Very thin, sickly appearance, scratches on throat, wounds on head. Low felt hat, black coat, teeth much discoloured. He is very round-shouldered and his thin overcoat hangs in awkward folds around his spare figure. His forehead and chin are both receding. He has a slight moustache and very small dark whiskers. His jawbones are prominent, his cheeks sunken and sallow and his teeth fully exposed when laughing. Scotland Yard resorted to using the telegraph likeness and their wanted poster in their reward poster released on the 4th of July. It's on the right there. Um, some £200, half from the government and half from the directors of the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway, was on offer to anyone who could provide information, which resulted in the apprehension of Lefroy. Suppose sightings were made in the South Coast town of towns of Folkestone, Shoreham and Littlehampton, and even in Calais. He was reportedly seen in Chester and Leeds in the north. The truth was, nobody knew where Percy Lefroy Mapleton was. Now I can imagine you're thinking, this is supposed to be a talk about Inspector Donald Swanson. Where is he? 
Well, the answer is that he was sitting in his office at Scotland Yard on the evening of the Friday the 8th of July when a young man came in and claimed to have knowledge of the whereabouts of the fugitive Percy Lefroy Mapleton. Lefroy's time on the run eventually came to an end, in part due to his own reluctance to leave the sanctuary of 32 Smith Street. He became increasingly desperate to get word to someone he trusted, and the previous day had asked lady, landlady Mrs Bickers to go to the city to supposedly collect his wages. He complained that he was unable to go himself as he had sprained his ankle get, getting out of bed that morning. When Mrs Bickers declined, he asked her to send a telegram instead. He wrote a draft which a neighbour called Mr Doyle took to the telegraph office. The message was a strange one. Sent to J.T. Hutchinson's at 56 Gresham Street, it asked for his wages to be sent to him that evening, but he was, certainly was not employed by the firm. Instead, it was a ploy to establish contact with his cousin Frank Seal, who worked as a clerk for Mr. Hutchinson. Sarah Bickers had for several days felt an uneasiness about the strange Mr. Clark, and when she found him wearing a coat belonging to another lodger, she decided to go to nearby Arbor Square Police Station to make a complaint. The following morning, she sent her daughter to the Gresham Street offices, identified by the telegram, to see what could be learned about Clark. There, Miss Bickers spoke with a young man who told her that nobody by that name was employed there. She then related the suspicions which she and her mother had had about the lodger. Having obtained a description of the lodger and the date he arrived at Smith Street, the young office clerk put two and two together and realised who the mysterious man was. At the end of his working hours, he went to Scotland Yard with a colleague where they met our friend, Inspector Donald Swanson. At quarter to eight that evening, a cab pulled up in Smith Street. Inside were Inspectors Swanson and Jarvis, alongside with a PC Hopkins, who knew Lefroy from Wallington. It was again a very warm evening, continuing that long hot summer. Swanson positioned Hopkins at the rear of the building. Suddenly, the detective saw Miss Jane Bickers approach her home and as she opened the door, Swanson followed and entered at the same time. He was met by her mother, Mrs Sarah Bickers, whom the detective took into the par parlour and stated the nature of his visit. He was told that the man he was interested in was at that moment in his room on the first floor. Swanson climbed the staircase, telling Jarvis to stay downstairs, guarding the front door. He quickly opened the door to the first room and saw a pale, thin man sitting in an armchair. Percy Lefroy Mapleton? Yes, I expected you. Even before Lefroy confirmed his name, there could be no doubt that this was the wanted man. A newspaper account of the arrest gave a vivid description of the fugitive's appearance at the moment of capture. It would have been impossible to have failed to see the poor, weakly inoffensive looking creature, the man whose sketch portrait, produced in the Daily Telegraph and reproduced in the police circulars, had made his remarkable features familiar to the force from one end of the kingdom to the other. The appearance of the man, but for the terrible crime laid to his account, was such that might have moved to commiseration. As he sat in the chair he looked extremely weak, miserable and dejected. His emaciated appearance seemed to tell a tale either of want of food or inability to take nourishment. He offered no resistance and was, indeed, incapable of offering any. Inspector Swanson continued, I am a railway officer and I arrested you for the willful murder of Mr Gold on the Brighton Railway. I am not obliged to make any reply, said Lefroy, and I think it better not to make any answer. Swanson wrote this last comment in his notebook and read it back to Lefroy, who replied, I will qualify that by saying I am not guilty. Jarvis then entered the room and was told by Swanson that Lefroy had admitted his identity. Jarvis searched Lefroy and found a finding a solitary shilling and the detectives then scoured the room. On top of a chest of drawers they saw a pipe, a bottle of arnica oil and a pair of scissors which a suspect said he had used to cut off his moustache. Inside the drawers were a bloodstained black cloth waistcoat, part of a flannel shirt and a false moustache and beard. Swanson and Jarvis took the suspect downstairs, 
where Mrs Bickers was waiting. Addressing Lefroy, she said, I did not know I had such a man as you in my house, or I would not have had you. Lefroy was taken in a cab first to Arbor Square Police Station, where his identity was confirmed, and then on to Scotland Yard. During the journey, Lefroy said, I'm glad you found me. I'm sick of it. I should have given myself up in a day or two. I've regretted it ever since that I ran away. It put a different complexion on the case, but I could not bear the exposure. I feared certain matters in connection with my family would be published. On arrival at Scotland Yard, director of the CID Howard Vincent and Chief Constable Frederick Williamson were waiting. The senior officers had received news of the arrest by telegraph and after a brief interview with Lefroy, ordered that he be taken to King Street Police Station, where he would be detained overnight. After a meal of sandwiches and coffee, the suspected murderer was placed in a cell and watched by three detectives, uh, by three constables. At last, the police were able to compare the wanted man with the widely circulated sketch side by side. He did not display the imbecilic look displayed in the likeness, and several officers remarked that while there was a resemblance, he would probably have passed him in the street without suspecting they were the man he was searching for. Two days later, despite leaving King Street Police Station at the early hours of seven o'clock, word had spread of the imminent departure and a large crowd gathered at Victoria Station to shout insults at the prisoner. Swanson and Jarvis hurried Lefroy into a first-class carriage and drew down the blinds to screen him from the crowd, which by this time lined the platform. The trial set off at 7.35am. Lefroy chatted amiably with the detectives sharing their cigarettes, and he generally seemed relaxed, but Swanson and Jarvis noticed when, that when travelling through Merston and Balcombe tunnels, he looked around and became excited. The ruling that a magistrate's hearing took place within the district where a body was found, and not where the suspect had been arrested, unexpectedly threw the spotlight on the Sussex village of Cookfield, home to a community more usually concerned with agricultural matters. On Friday the 15th of July, the prisoner was taken to the committal heating hearing, which was being held at the village's most suitable venue, the Talbot Hotel. Inside, the hotel's function room on the first floor had been hastily prepared for the hearing, with three long tables arranged for the magistrates, lawyers and members of the press. Lefroy himself sat in an armchair, with the public standing at a cleared space partitioned from proceedings by a barrier constructed of timber. Through the half-open windows drifted the smell of nearby pigsties. This drawing of the committal hearing shows a rough sketch of Inspector Swanson on the far left, it's one of the very few throughout his long career. A better sketch show, shows Swanson watching over his prisoner and one of both he and Jarvis as they gave their evidence, which clearly impressed one reporter who wrote, Inspector Swanson is one of the keenest, and if the term can be used, most detective-like Scotchmen that it would be possible to find. Lefroy would have received him in 22 Smith Street with coolness, but the appearance of such an officer of police was certainly not calculated to inspire a suspected man with confidence. Mr Swanson's manner of announcing himself as he entered the room was not quite that of the most agreeable visitor. His attitude, as he stood opposite Lefroy yesterday, did not at any rate suggest that. There are many people in the world whom a person hiding from general observation would rather see than Inspector Swanson. The business-like way in which he proceeded with his evidence suggested what his manner was like when he was in the room. He had actually taken down the prisoner's words in a memorandum book at the very moment when Lefroy was in his grasp. No wonder that Lefroy's solicitor refrained from cross-examining him. Inspector Jarvis, who had accompanied Mr Swanson to the house, was a very fit companion indeed, and as they stood side by side, while the dispositions of Mr Swanson were being read over, and Mr Jarvis was waiting to give his evidence, they certainly appeared patterns of what two such men should be. The chances of escape remaining when anyone was in their hands would be very slight. After hearing evidence from a total of more than 50 witnesses, the magistrates 
had no hesitation in sending Luke the prisoner to trial at Maidstone. The trial of Percy Lefroy Mapleton opened on Friday the 4th of November 1881 with Mr Justice Coleridge presiding. Leading the prosecution was Sir Henry James, the, the Attorney General, while the defence was led by Mr Montague Williams. So indifferent was Lefroy to the proceedings of his four-day trial that he spent the majority of his time preoccupied with his hat. He had asked permission to wear his dress suit in court purely to impress the jury. His counsel, Montague Williams, would later write that Lefroy assumed a studious pose whenever he caught a newspaper artist preparing a sketch of the accused. The defending counsel did his best to introduce doubt into the minds of the jury, repeatedly asking them whether alternative explanations for certain aspects of the case were possible, if not altogether likely. This task would prove most challenging when attempting to place Lefroy's supposed attacker in the carriage, as recognised by one reporter, who wrote, One of the great, if not the great, difficulty which the defence had to contend with was a mysterious countryman, who sprang into the train when it was travelling at 50 miles an hour, murdered Mr Gold in the presence of Mapleton, robbed the old man of his watch, assaulted Mapleton, stuffed the gold watch into Mapleton's boot, flung the body out of the carriage and then jumped out of the train himself and vanished into space. Quite. Montague Williams delivered quite possibly the finest speech of his career when closing for the defence, but the 12 gentlemen of the jury might have been while they might have been impressed, they retired for just 10 minutes before declaring Percy Lefroy and Mapleton guilty of murder. Williams would later write in his memoirs, When the foreman pronounced the word guilty, up rose Lefroy and, placing his hands behind him, approached the rails. He seemed to be altogether at ease, although pallid. There was a moment, however, when he grasped convulsively at the rails and swelled to and fro as though about to fall. But the weakness was only for a moment. The next minute he was himself again, and folding his arms, he fixed his eyes intently upon the jury and said, Some day you will learn when too late that you have murdered me. Then, with a firm step, he retired and disappeared from the public gaze. Lefroy was taken back to Lewis Jail and placed in the condemned cell. The date of his execution was set for the 29th of November. With time running out and no sign of clemency on the horizon, Lefroy began to write his autobiography. In it, he confessed to a great many things, thankfully including the murder of Mr Gold. And I'd like to read Lefroy's own account of the murder from his autobiography, which is held in the Home Office files at the National Archives. When the train started, Mr Gold was looking out of the window, and I was ostensibly reading the paper. On, on, through the dear familiar scenery rushed the train, reminding me of many and many a cherished walk with those I loved. But of none of those things was I thinking now, as I sat there with fixed and staring eyes, my hand slowly drawing the deadly weapon from its hiding place. Quicker and quicker flew the train, higher and higher rose the chalky walls on either side, and fiercer and fiercer raged a battle in my heart, not yet long commenced, but which, in these few seconds, was to decide my earthly fate forever. Which was it to be, a pistol and money and happiness, or innocence and all my false and hollow life laid bare? Quick, no time for reflection, higher and higher rose the walls of chalk, shutting out all sight of heaven and telling me that now I must decide for once and forever. Nearer and nearer, closer and closer, the yawning mouth was closed upon us. Fifty yards, thirty, ten, five, we were in. Slowly I closed my eyes, extended my arm, and fired. And ere the trigger fell, the engine gave an awful shriek, like the last bit of cry of my good spirit as it flew in horror from me, and I was in darkness, both in soul and body. As the report died away, I sprang to my feet, peered into the gloom where my unoffending victim had been sitting. Had I killed him? No, no, for an instant, in an instant he was upon me. Not before, though in my madness I discharged three or four more shots at him. In an instant I was extended on the ground, up against the farthest door, keeping at bay as well as I could at the justly infuriated man. 
who with one hand grasped me by the throat and with the other struck me savagely upon the head with the revolver which he grasped by the handle, striking me with the end of the muzzle. Not a word was uttered, and there in the darkness of the tunnel that death struggle commenced. The awful blackness of the tunnel, with air laden by the fearful smell of, the, of powder, only made visible by the feeble light above, which shed its sickly light upon that livid face, which finally looked into mine, made such a fearful impression on me that never, if I lived a thousand years, could I forget it. Poor Mr. Gold could easily have pulled the communicator a dozen times had he wished to do so, but he'd never appeared to think of it. As for me, I was a mere child in his hands, and I had as much as I could do to save myself from being throttled when he threw the pistol on one side and tried to grasp my throat with both his hands. And so the time sped on, and our positions never changed, he pinioning me to the ground while I strenuously resisted, neither being armed and both being on the floor of the carriage. At last the deadly struggle changed. All at once, as if by mutual agreement, we released each other, both maddened with fury and both believing they were fighting for their lives. I knew that if we both arrived at Brighton, my fate was sealed, and I knew that we might be quite close, for every minute that passed it seemed, at least to me, as if it was freighted with the weight of years. And now, before Mr. Gold could prevent me, I had sprung up, and throwing open the door, called to him in a voice of some demon fresh from hell below, that made me start and tremble when I heard it, to jump from the train or I'd shoot him, at the same time snatching up the pistol. And then, with the train flying along at 50 miles an hour, the door wide open and the floor already slippery with blood, the awful ending came. A mad refusal, a pull at a brittle chain, heaving backwards and forward, twisting and turning, blade against pistol, another shriek from the engine, black, bitter darkness, a sudden jerk, an awful cry, a door quickly shut, and I found myself alone. Percy Lefroy Mapleton was executed at Lewis Jail on Tuesday the 29th of November 1881. It was only the fourth hanging to take place there in the 25 years since the jail had opened. Newspaper reporters were admitted at 8.30am and escorted to a yard where the gallows had been erected in the right-hand corner, a simple crossbeam over a pit into which the prisoner would drop. Forty feet to the left was a grave already drug in, dug in readiness to receive the body. Apart from the press, the only people in the yard were Mr Ball, the Deputy Governor, and William Marwood, the executioner. At five minutes to nine, Marwood went inside to fetch the prisoner. One newspaper reporter later recorded, In two minutes the procession emerged from the door leading from the corridor in which the condemned cell is situated. First came the chaplain, who, as he came out, began to read the burial service in clear and solemn tones, the only other sound being the clang of the passing bell, which had been tolling some ten minutes. The clergyman was followed by a warder, and then came Lefroy, pinioned and bare-necked, with a warder on either side and the executioner close at the rear. The condemned man walked with a set, steadfast face, moving as though a man in a dream, his lips tightly closed, looking neither to the right nor left, stepping quietly in time with the remainder of the possession. It took but a moment to reach a scaffold, onto which Lefroy stepped without the slightest hesitation. A, a slight fixing together of the lips alone, showing inward agitation. Then Marwood proceeded to his work, first placing Lefroy in a proper position under the beam, and afterwards fastening his legs with a broad leather strap. He then produced the, the cap for shrouding the convict's face from his pocket and instantly placed it in position. As this was being done, Lefroy slightly raised his eyes, but not a feature on his face relaxed his rigidity. His lips never, mused, never moved in response to the clergyman, who, all this time, in tones that showed the deep emotion he felt, was reciting the select, selected portions of the service. As soon as he had drawn the cap over Lefroy's eyes, Marwood put the noose around his neck and with dexterity and rapidity adjusted the rope. Marwood stayed a moment to make sure all was all right, 
And then, with a slight touch of his hand on Lefroy's right shoulder, he stepped back from the scaffold and stood by the lever that controlled the working of the drop. The next instant, the, the minister recited the words, Lord have mercy upon us. Marwood pulled the lever and the doomed man dropped out of sight of the spectators. Lefroy's body was left hanging for an hour. At 10.15am, it was cut down and Richard Turner, the surgeon attached to Lewis Jail, examined the body and pronounced life extinct. An inquest was immediately conducted under, again under Coroner Wynne Baxter, and the jury members viewed the body, which by this time had been placed in its coffin, and returned a verdict that the law had been properly carried out. The coffin was then buried in the grave, previously prepared. The strange life of Percy Lefroy Mapleton was over. <clears throat> Several of those involved in the Lefroy affair in an official capacity would have their expertise called upon in even more terrible circumstances seven years later. Inspector Donald Swanson would leave Scotland Yard's hunt for Jack the Ripper, while Coroner Wynne Baxter presided over the inquest into the deaths of several of the Ripper's victims. Dr Thomas Bond would become known for his profile of the Whitechapel murderer, accepted by most as the first criminal profile. Swanson recorded the result of the Lefroy investigation in his private arrest book, shown here. He was a particular beneficiary of the, of the case, his, his capture of the fugitive would catapult him into the national limelight and see him handed cases of increasing popular importance. He was awarded £5 by the Commissioner for energy and zeal, displaying making numerous inquiries, and also received £5 from the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway. His good fortune was perhaps not enjoyed by all, for one newspaper commented, Inspector Swanson, whose name has been made so prominent in connection with the arrest of Lefroy, bears a soubriquet among his colleagues of Lucky Swanson. Six days after the execution, Swanson would travel north to Aberdeen, where he would investigate the first case of body snatching in this country for more than 50 years. This case will be the subject of my next talk. Percy Lefroy Mapleton lived his life as if in a dream, and today, nearly 140 years later, he seems an almost dreamlike character. To some extent, even worthy of our sympathy. But the harsh reality is that Lefroy was a liar, a thief and finally a murderer, for which he paid the ultimate price. It's worth pausing to reflect on the way in which coverage of the case became increasingly sensationalistic in an attempt to attract readers, a ploy continued by the media to this day, as seen with overwhelming and irritating online clickbait headlines. Thank you for listening. I'll just uh, check my phone to see if there's any comments. I see I've got a missed call from Mr. Reese, so hopefully nothing has gone wrong with the talk. Ah. Let's just see. Hopefully I'll put it in the right place. There's a few comments saying nobody could see a... Um, Looks as though I've, uh, looks as though it's not been recording. Let me just check. <clears throat>